We have been taught in society to really divorce ourselves from listening to our bodies. Your menstrual cycle is an expression of your vitality. We will experience under the influence of these hormones differences in our mood, you know, our attention, our focus, whether or not we're chatty or not. What we want to be doing as women is optimizing for our fertility. How can I continue to experience this ease and grace and beauty that is my menstrual cycle? Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, today's episode was so wonderful. Dr. Stephanie Estima is such a beautiful, kind, brilliant soul, and it was so exciting to dive into all things hormones, women's cycle, sexual health. I think this is such a big need as far as education goes surrounding this topic, and I cannot thank Dr. Estima enough for what she's doing. It's so empowering. Even if you're a man, I think you will learn a lot here about the ladies in your life, so do not miss this one. We even talk about spicy things like vibrators. (laughs) It was really a fun time. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash bettybody, B-E-T-T-Y-B-O-D-Y. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. Then also check out my Instagram, Melanie Avalon. Also find the announcement post about this episode and comment to enter to win something I love. If you are enjoying this show, make sure to subscribe in iTunes. It helps so, so much as far as just getting the show out there, helping it climb in the rankings. And then if you're ever feeling like it, writing a review on iTunes helps so, so much. So thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, They are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. 
So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features, so I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now. Before we change to subscriptions, you can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, 
their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code CLEANFORALL20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Stephanie Estima. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is a long time coming. I read this book quite a while ago. And Stephanie, I have to tell you this. Um, It's so funny. Your people, I think, proposed you to me for the show. And I got your book, The Betty Body. And I was really excited to read it. And then that same day, a few different listeners in my Facebook group were like, you have to read this book. You have to bring her on the podcast. And I was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) I was like, she just reached out to me. Yeah, I'm so, so looking forward to this. Friends, I'm here with Dr. Stephanie Estima. She is the author of The Betty Body, A Geeky Goddess's Guide to Intuitive Eating, Balanced Hormones, and Transformative Sex. You can probably tell why I'm excited. There are a lot of keywords in that title. Yeah, I haven't done an episode specifically focused on females with females and their cycle, hormones. I haven't really. I've done one sort of dancing around the topic, but this is my first foray into that. So I am so, so excited. And then listeners, I read The Betty Body and it was so incredible. It was a beautiful, empowering book that just as a female made you just want to just take charge of your health and your hormones and super approachable, but also very scientific, which I know you guys love, which I love. I mean, the word geeky is in the title, so that's always a good sign. So in any case, Dr. Estima, thank you so much for being here. I'm thrilled to be here and we're going to have, I just have a really great feeling about this. We're going to have a really great conversation. Me too. So a lot of my listeners probably are familiar with your work, but for those who are not, Dr. Estima is a doctor of chiropractic and she does have a special interest in all the things I love, metabolism, body composition, functional neurology, and female physiology. She's been on Thrive 
Global at the Huffington Post. She has articles on Medium. She has her amazing book. She has her signature program, The Estima Diet. And she has her podcast, which is called Better with Dr. Stephanie. So super, super excited. That was a little bit of your background, but would you like to tell listeners a little bit more personal about your background, which you do talk about in the book, but what were your own health challenges and struggles, particularly as a female? And what epiphany did you have? I don't know if it happened all at once or was it over time, but what epiphanies did you have about the role of female in society, particularly in regard to our health and our hormones and all of that schnaz. All that schnaz. Yeah. So a uh, big topic, really. I would say that I spent many, many years personally really at war with my body. So as it relates to my menstrual cycle. So I always sort of viewed my menstrual cycle as this you know, punishment that I had every month for being a woman. It was like lots of cramping, moodiness, sleeplessness, you know, had to take medication to be able to function through the day. And it was always just like, it was such a nuisance. For me, I continued to ignore the signs that my body was trying to tell me. It was like, slow down, listen, <laughs> you know, stop pushing yourself so hard, stop being in your masculine energy so much. And, you know, maybe we'll get to that today. And it really wasn't until I would say that it, it wasn't a rock bottom, but it was pretty, it was pretty close. I had Within the same year, my clinic that I had been practicing out of for many years, there was a fire, the clinic burnt down. And that same year, I was going through a divorce with my, the father of my children. And our children were very small at that time. They were five and three. So very, very difficult, very, very stressful. And both of those things are so rebuilding the clinic, at, you know, trying to find a temporary space, dealing with insurance, and then trying to find a new space and rebuilding and all of that. And then going through some of the emotional stuff, you know, that just happens with a divorce. And I'm really great friends with their father now, but I don't care if you're Gwyneth Paltrow, like it's going to be difficult, you know, when you're going through, when you're going through a divorce, especially with young children, it's very charged. So emotionally charged anyway. So it really wasn't until I took the kids, you know, we went on a trip to, it was Italy that we went to for a few weeks and it really wasn't until I was able to really unwind there. So getting lots of sunlight, spending lots of time at the beach, playing with them in the water, you know, going for walks to get our meals, having, you know, just enjoying the very simple pleasures in life that I realized how stressed that I was. And as evidenced by the drastic change that I actually experienced in my menstrual cycle while I was in Italy. So towards the end of that trip, actually got my period, which would have, you know, in, in, you know, past lives would have completely ruined. I would have been holed up in the hotel room with a mask on, you know, you know, filled to the brim with mitol. And it wasn't like that at all. I felt there was no cramping. There was no heavy bleeding. It really came, you know, my period came, it was, you know, effortless. I felt like, you know, I, I remember actually telling my friend, I was texting her and I was saying, I feel like a goddess, like this is what, you know, menstruation should feel like, right? Yeah. So that was really my, we'll call it awakening, if you will, to the possibility that it doesn't necessarily need to be punitive. It doesn't necessarily need, you don't need to suffer through this every month. And so what I wanted to do, just being the kind of perennial experimenter that I am, was to deconstruct what were some of the things that I was doing 
in, you know, I mean, every, I always like joke and say, everything's always better in Italy, right? But what are some of the things that I can do coming back to North America? How can I continue some of these habits and continue to experience this ease and grace and beauty that is my menstrual cycle? And so that was, you know, one of the prongs, if you will, into why the Betty Body book exists. And I started experimenting in the clinic at the time. I had patients that I was running through a nutrition program, also already noticing that women were getting different outcomes than my guys. Like the guys were like, this is the best thing. I just like dropped 20 pounds this week, you know? And the women were like, this is the worst. I've been following the same diet as my husband and I've only lost two pounds. Like what's going on? So I started experimenting with my patients, my very gracious patients who let me experiment with them on changing the way that they eat based on their menstrual cycle. And so those two things sort of coming together almost at the same time were how I came up with this methodology that that I discuss in the book. I love it so much. And I just want to say that I can't even imagine the stress of your clinic burning down because I feel like that would be something that you could only appreciate if you experienced it, having a building burned down. Yeah, it was a nightmare. I actually remember the night I was like playing, you know, with my kids as we were doing like Legos and then, you know, got the call from the landlord of the property and he's like, you need to come down here right now and see if we can salvage anything. And, you know, I had to find, you know, care. Like I had to find, you know, someone to watch my kids and come down. And it was just this, everything was just torched. There was, I was nothing I was able to keep. The only thing that I was able to keep, thankfully, was my degree which somehow, I guess, be behind the glass, yeah, didn't, didn't burn down. Oh my goodness. That's really nice. So just a really quick question about your personal experience. When you had all of those stressful events prior to that, was your cycle always like a thing that you dreaded or did it become worse when you were super stressed or what was your relationship with your cycle historically? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. I'd say historically, I always had trouble with it. So I always, unbeknownst to me now, sort of looking back you know, hindsight's all 2020, right? So looking back is like, oh yeah, I was totally estrogen dominant, you know, had very tender, angry, you know, breasts leading up to my period. My rings, I couldn't get, if I was wearing, you know, jewelry, I couldn't have, I couldn't fit those on. I was retaining a lot of water, very much changes in my mood, GI distress. So I had a lot of changes in terms of you know, regularity with my bowel movements and even just eating lots of like more bloating than you might, you know, normally expect from the same foods that you're eating through the month. And sleep was disturbed, you know, much more emotional. And I've always historically had issues with it. And it for sure it would get worse in times of stress as it naturally and, you know, normally should. But I've always struggled with silencing. I always struggled with the symptoms that were coming up that I wasn't addressing. And so I resorted to silencing them with medication. And it wasn't really until I sort of went through this whole, I don't like to call, I mean, maybe it is hitting rock bottom. Like I, some people might classify that as maybe like divorce with like a five and a three-year-old and no place to work, you know, like maybe that is quite uh, traumatic, but it was, it wasn't until those things were happening. And I went to Italy and had this experience where I was like, okay, if I can do this once, you know, yes, you know, the environment was different, but my body was also able to respond to those changes. So there is something inherently, you know, baked into my physiology that I, that can bring about a peaceful, gracious, beautiful menstrual cycle. So what are some of those things and how does that contrast with what I was doing in the previous years and decades? 
Yeah. And it's so fascinating that you could experience such quick changes in your experience of your menstrual cycle, you know, just on a trip. Yeah, I know. I would have never, I would have never believed that if you told me it can just change in one cycle. Like, yeah, right. You know, I've been, this has been going on for decades. It's a problem that I've always had to deal with, but it really is like when you, when you can change some of the ways that you are bathing your genes, you know, your epigenetics, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about today, then you can absolutely make profound changes in the, in your physiology in a short Delta, in a short period of time. I was debating if I was going to share this. So growing up, I had a heavy period, didn't like it, similar to your story, like, you know, not really a fan. (laughs) And then when I changed my diet, it actually got really nice and regular and not that big of a deal. And then I went through a period where I had amenorrhea, so I didn't have a period. I now have a cycle again. But what was really interesting about my experience during that amenorrhea period, (laughs) no pun intended, is the confusion surrounding feeling actually very free, not having a period (laughs) because I was like, oh, I don't have to deal with any of this hormonal craziness anymore. And when I would go to doctors, they would say it was just because I was too low of a weight and that everything else was fine. So it wasn't a big deal. And so I've been sort of haunted by my own experience and my own like reconciliation of how to have a healthy relationship with perceiving my menstrual cycle in my own body, especially because I think in today's society, I think there's a messaging of like that we don't need a period or, you know, that we shouldn't be, you know, that we can be like little men, like we, you know, that we can be like free of this. So it's like very confusing waters to navigate. What are your thoughts on that? Like the role of our period and society and our feelings about it. I think this is such a profound question. And, you know, I applaud you for your openness because I think a lot of women have the same experience that you just described, where we are sort of told that, hey, you can be free of this. Just, you know, get on the pill or, you know, get on this patch or do this, you know, put this, you know, oral or, you know, some type of hormonal or mechanical contraceptive on to free yourself, to liberate yourself from this curse, right? And that was actually the name that, you know, if you look back at, you know, TV shows and, you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s, it's like, oh, I can't today, I have the curse, you know? And I think that, you know, to your point, I think that our menstrual cycle, there's a lot of shame around it. Like the, I remember as a teenager, the absolute worst thing that I could think of as a 17 or an 18 year old would be to get my period and for, you know, maybe to leak through my pants or something. And for that to, you know, for people to see that I was menstruating. So I think that there's a lot of built in shame in society around our cycles. And as you were saying, there is this like, Hey, we have all of these tools and tricks and hacks to get to rid you of it. But really in reality, our menstrual cycle as women or humans with ovaries, right? This is, this is a vital sign in the same way that you might look at your heart rate over time or your oxygen saturation or your blood pressure or your respiratory rate. You'd want to monitor those things to make sure that they're in an optimal level. And I would also argue that your menstrual cycle not just your bleed week, not just your period, but the totality of your cycle, that 28, 29, 30 day, you know, however long it is, cycle is an expression of your vitality. And if you are in your, you know, menstruating years, your years where you are reproductive, and that includes in your forties, when you, when we move into perimenopause, which is a slightly different category, 
But what we want to be doing as women is optimizing for our fertility, optimizing our menstrual cycle to be as easy as it, as it can be to balance out some of the hormonal derangements that can pop up from things like stress, poor sleep, you know, nutrition that's not aligned with our cycle, tr- overtraining and different types of training that I think women have been sold. You know, I don't know if we'll have time to get into this, but I'll just say it now, just in case we don't. But I think women have been sold this idea that we have to do cardio, like little cardio bunnies on the treadmill or on the elliptical ad nauseum without really consideration for some of the benefits that resistance training can not only do for your, like to balance your hormones, but as a prophylactic all through your life in terms of developing lean muscle mass, increasing your muscle mass, increasing your bone density, increasing, you know, the weight of your organs. These are things that we want to be, we want to be flexing for, right? We want to be trying to optimize for over the course of our life. So we could probably talk for a couple hours on sort of, you know, the patriarchy and why we are just conditioned as women to really hate ourselves. And there's this sort of pressure to be more of a consumer. Like we're told, hey, you know what, once you get that $4,000, whatever Chanel bag, or you buy this, you know, this mascara or that dress or these shoes with the, you know, the red bottoms or whatever, you're going to be full. You're going to be fulfilled. Now, listen, I have red bottom shoes, right? I have, I have expensive things, but I remember the obtaining of those things are so fleeting. The, the thing that lasts in terms of our feelings of self-worth and our feelings of being fulfilled and attuned with ourselves comes from within. It's not something that you can buy in a shop. That actually leads really well into my next question because something I sort of struggle with with my place in society is I really like the idea of like the feminine body and like this whole image and I feel really comfortable living in that feeling, but then I wonder, am I like subscribing to some patriarchal version of womanhood and society? But you have in your book, you have, you know, this concept of a Betty. What is a Betty? And how does that fit into the narrative of society? Great question. So the name Betty, we stumbled on it by accident. So my podcast, as you mentioned, at the beginning, it's called, it's called Better with Dr. Stephanie. And so we had we started calling the fans of Better our Bettys, right? So it's just a little cutesy name that we were saying, oh, our Better fans are our little Bettys, right? And looked it up on the Urban Dictionary. And, you know, being a Betty actually has a definition. So this is, and I'm paraphrasing, I, put, I, I wrote out the full definition in the book, but it's you know, it's a modern day queen. She's like a modern day triple threat. She's quirky. She's loving. She, you know, she's in the pursuit of excellence. And, and I remember reading this definition going, oh my gosh, I'm quirky. (laughs) I'm loving. I have the pursuit of excellence. Like this is exactly the embodiment. The description of a Betty was the embodiment of who I aspire to be. It was the best version of myself. And it's, you know, diet agnostic, size agnostic, like you could be a size 14, you could be a size four, it it doesn't matter. It's really about being attuned to your body signals and honoring and knowing how to appropriately respond to your internal and your external environment. And so many women, myself, I would put myself in this, in this bucket as well. We have been taught in society to really divorce ourselves from listening to our bodies, right? Like, 
you know, the doctor knows best or so-and-so has done this before. They're going to know more than you. When women for millennia have talked about this idea of intuition, you know, this women's intuition, this sort of sixth or seventh, you know, unconscious sense where, you know, we can sense that something's not right, even though everyone's saying, oh, look, you know, your labs are completely normal (laughs) or, you know, you, you know, you're pre- I was just talking to Monica Berg uh, for my podcast. She's head of the Kabbalah Center. And she was talking about her second pregnancy where she had this sense that the pregnancy was not right. And everyone's like, no, you're fine. It's good. It's no problem. And then, you know, the baby ended up, I believe, and had, I think it was Down syndrome. And she was like, you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, my child being Down syndrome, but I knew it. You know, she just had that sort of feminine, like intuition that society basically tells us to ignore. So kind of back to your original question, what a Betty is, it's a fully embodied woman. So it's someone who can tap into her intelligence, her IQ, her emotional intelligence, her EQ, and then to know how to appropriately respond to the ever-changing, you know, hormonal landscape that she will go through over the over the arc of her life because a woman will, you know, be premenstrual. She won't be menstruating. She will start menstruating somewhere around, you know, huge variance, but we'll call it somewhere around 12 to 15 years old. And then she menstruates. We go into perimenopause in about our forties and then we're menopausal at some point in our fifties and sixties. So there's a huge, and then in, and you might throw in some pregnancy, multiple pregnancies there, some labor and delivery, breastfeeding, and the sleepless nights that, you know, we call motherhood. So there's a huge hormonal variance in a woman's life that men just don't experience and can't relate to. And so I think that a Betty is someone who knows what she needs and how to nourish herself from within without that external looking outside for the answers, but looking within. I love it. I love it. It's so empowering. And yeah, and speaking to that about the response from society. So last night I was reading, do you know Dr. Michael Plack or Platt? And that name sounds familiar. He has um, a book on adrenaline dominance and then bioidentical hormones. I'm not familiar with his work, but the name does ring a bell. Okay. I was reading his books last night and I was reading about the history of estrogen therapy. So like progestin and stuff. And it's, it's really shocking. That's just an example of society not listening or appreciating women because basically with the the rise of progestin, so like synthetic estrogen therapy started being used for so long. And eventually they realized with the Women's Health Initiative that it was, you know, related to all of these cancers and all of these health issues and actually had to stop the study because of what they were finding. But this was after, you know, decades of women being on it and, and women are still on it today. I just think, feel like there's so much misunderstanding about female hormones and addressing female hormones and then the response in the clinical literature and how women are treated by doctors. It's just very frustrating. Oh, 100%. And we haven't been studied either. So, you know, we've been purposely excluded historically from clinical trials because our menstrual cycle has been considered a confounding variable. It's like, well, she's too different, you know, and the point, like you have to understand that, you know, when we are looking at high quality studies, like a randomized control study, double blind, you know, what have you, we are trying to sort of tamper down any possible variable that could alter the results. So women were just historically excluded because our menstrual cycle is something where we essentially have a different hormonal composition every single day, 
all throughout our menstrual cycle. So I think it was only in 2014 that the NIH mandated that women need to be included in like all studies, unless if you're specifically studying like, you know, something that's going on in males or whatever. And, you know, it's 2021, like, please. With the Women's Health Initiative, I will say, maybe this is a different podcast, you know, different conversation, but I will say that they really did botch that study. The results that they took from that. First, the the population that they studied, they tended to be, so they were looking at what the intervention, like, you know, putting in progestin, as you were mentioning, uh, synthetic progesterone, uh, synthetic estrogen, so Premarin, pregnant mare's urine is the kind of the, that's what, that's where Premarin comes from. Giving that to a largely very sick cohort. So the women tended to be obese. There was a large proportion of them that were smokers. A lot of them were over the age of 65. And so they already had all these sort of cardiometabolic risk factors. And then you add on a stress, like giving them a synthetic hormone. And of course, they're going to have terrible, of course, you're going to get terrible results from that. I think there's been some revisions since the original publication has released, but I'm a fan of bioidenticals. I think that if you have a solid foundation of some of the things we're going to talk about today, so nutrition and fitness and lifestyle and sleep, you know, sleep hygiene and stress mitigation, and you're still having, you know, if you're a woman in your late 40s, early, you know, whatever it is, and you are having symptoms of low testosterone or low estrogen, or, you know, you're moody and you still can't get it right, then bioidenticals might be a beautiful solution for you. And I think that there's sort of been this shame again around, oh, estrogen, like if you give estrogen, you're going to, you know, give someone a heart attack in the same way that we've thought classically about cholesterol. Oh, cholesterol, too much. No, you're going to have a heart attack. Or same with salt. Oh, you have too much salt. No, you're going to have a heart attack. You know, these like overly simplistic sound bites, I think have really prevented a lot of women from getting, you know, whether it's fat that they need in their diet, you know, the therapy, the therapeutic intervention that they need, you know, or even just like salting their food to support their thyroid, you know? So I realize that that's a tangent. Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I love tangents. I personally really think the salvation of it all is in the nuance. And I mean, it's really a travesty how much it has become just very black and white and simplistic. Like you said, this is not female hormones. This is not my forte at all. But I think the place I've currently landed is very much what you just said that, you know, diet and lifestyle is the foundation. But then beyond that, I definitely think there's a role for bioidentical hormones. So a foundational question to paint a really good picture, going back to the menstrual cycle, could you actually just walk listeners through the menstrual cycle, <laughs> like the four phases and the implications of the hormones during those four phases? I just think it's such a foundational knowledge that a lot of people don't really you know, think about. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's such a great question. And I just want to applaud you as well, because I think that if you can't understand what's happening, you know, finding a solution is going to be just impossible, right? So this is what you're doing here is you're setting the stage for empowerment for the women and, you know, the men who love them, right? To help their women so that we can find solutions. So yes, I'd love to answer this question. So menstrual cycle length varies. We typically talk about it in 28 days just because it very easily divides into seven, which is a week long. So, you know, it's four weeks, but of course the, the typical length of a menstrual cycle can vary anywhere from 26 days up to 33 days. So, you know, I'm going to talk about it just for simplicity in the context of weeks, like week one, week two, week three, week four. If you are someone who menstruates every 31 days or 27 days, this also applies to you, but you're just going to have slightly longer or shorter weeks, right? So that's, you know, my little shtick about length. So there's four, in the book, I talk about four main points in the cycle. So the first, everybody knows it's week one of your cycle. This is your bleed, right? This is when we are shedding the endometrial lining. You know, everybody knows when they're in that phase because, you know, we we're bleeding. So we need to either wear a cup or, you know, a tampon or, you know, whatever it is that you're, that you're using. In this week, in terms of hormones, most hormones are relatively low. So we will see, especially at the beginning of the week, at the onset of your period, we will see estrogen very low. It will tend to increase as the week goes on. Progesterone's not around. So progesterone is our pro-pregnancy hormone. We'll see her make her appearance in the second half of the cycle in week three and four. The only hormone that's really working here is something called FSH or follicular stimulating hormone. This is released from the brain. And the, the idea here around FSH is to you know, kind of what it, you know, it's follicular stimulating hormone. It's sort of doing what the name suggests. It's stimulating the follicles. So in the beginning of your cycle, in this bleed week, there are going to be many follicles that respond to FSH, but there will only eventually be one that is chosen with the egg inside that will eventually be released. Luteinizing hormone, again, released from the brain, not really around here either. So that's sort of the hormonal environment, if you will. Like everything's kind of low. As we move towards the end of week one, 
we will start to see a rise in estrogen. Estrogen is you know, typically it's, you know, phenotypically ascribed as the female hormone, right? It's the hormone that gives us our, at least our, you know, at very initially our, our secondary sex characteristics, right? So the development of our breasts and the curvature in our hips, it tends to, when you have an appropriate amount of estrogen, you will tend to deposit fat in a female-centric way, which is to say in the hips and the thighs and the bum, even though we all don't like that, but that's normal, <laughs> okay? What you, what you don't want is you don't want ectop, an ectopic fat distribution, which is where you're getting fat accumulating in the belly, right? So when I'm, what I'm describing as optimal is sort of more of an hourglass figure or maybe more of a pear-shaped figure, right? Where we have a waist and then estrogen will direct our fat deposition to the lower half of our body. The apple is, is when we start to see lower estrogen or we start to see more, which we'll talk about kind of more androgen dominance. So that's week one. Week two, you know, estrogen has started to rise towards the end of week one. And then into week two, this is where you'll see estrogen make a, there'll be a massive increase in estrogen's concentration. It is the apical, it is the highest point that you should reach with estrogen through your cycle. Other hormones that are present in week two, you'll see testosterone also making its debut. And testosterone is a very important hormone. It's involved in maintaining muscle mass. And, you know, I have a huge bias towards resistance training. So the more muscle mass you have, the naturally the more testosterone you'll have. It's also involved in libido. So I always make this joke that I always know in, the, in this week two or this pre-ovulatory week, like I'm kind of like, where's my husband? You know, like chasing him around the kitchen, the kitchen island. We're more, more interested in sex this week. You also phys like physically might also notice that if you are climaxing, if you are having orgasms this week, they're much more intense. That's usually under the direction of testosterone. You may also notice like more sensitivity for example, in your, you know, in your genitalia, like your clitoris might be more sensitive as well. We also will see luteinizing hormone this week as well. So luteinizing hormone is the hormone that it sort of comes in and comes out. It's like a really high amplitude pulse of luteinizing hormone. And that is what's going to help that one follicle that's been chosen to release the egg. We have ovulation, which is actually the main point of our cycle. So a lot of, you know, I always say that, you know, the, our period is like the popular girl, like she gets all the attention, right? But the, the main point of our cycle is ovulation. We, we want to be optimizing for ovulation. This is our fertility. So your egg is released at some point, somewhere between, you know, 10 to 36 hours after that luteinizing hormone spike and your egg is released. And your egg is, depending on your age, will be viable for, you know, somewhere between four to 24 hours. So this is a really important point. I always like to pause here because your ability to get pregnant in your cycle is mere hours. And I think that this is why it's, this is why this question, Melanie, is so important because I think that we've all been, I mean, at least I was taught, you know, when I was little, it's like, you could get pregnant going into a swimming pool. Like you could get pregnant, like just by looking at someone, you know? And of course we know physiologically, there are times in your cycle where it is impossible. You cannot get pregnant. So your fertility window, you know, changes as you age, but somewhere between four and 24 hours. 
And then after ovulation, we move into the second half of our cycle. So now we're into week three and four. Collectively, we call this the luteal phase because the follicle that once held the egg, now we refer to that follicle that's empty as the corpus luteum. And the corpus luteum will start secreting progesterone. After you ovulate, your body will also start to secrete progesterone. And this is why we will see a warming. Like if you're, if you're tracking your temperature, you will be warmer after you ovulate in the same way that you're warmer right before you get your period. And progesterone is a warming hormone. It sort of increases our core body temperature. And in week three, right after ovulation, you know, I, I mentioned in week two, estrogen is really, really high, reaches its highest peak in the cycle. And then she drops, right? Like right before ovulation, estrogen just tanks and then starts to slowly come back up again in week three. And there'll be a sustained secretion of estrogen until about the middle of week four. Progesterone, as I mentioned, is starting to be secreted from the corpus luteum and it will reach its peak at the end of week three, sort of beginning of week four, like somewhere between day 19, you know, if we're doing a 28 day cycle, somewhere between day 19 and 22. Progesterone is a very interesting hormone. So I mentioned, you know, warming, it's very warming in terms of neurological impact. She will also, and I, I always refer to progesterone, I don't know why I anthropomorphize everything, but you know, progesterone is a she in my brain. So she will also have a calming effect on the brain. So she will activate inhibitory transmitters like GABA. So we often feel very chill in sort of in week three. The other thing that she does is she slows everything down. So she will slow down GI motility. So you may notice that your bowel movements might slow. Like maybe you're used to having one or two bowel movements a day, and now maybe you're just squeaking one out, right? Or maybe not even. You may also notice that you have more, we'll call it GI distress, right? Some more, you know, maybe bloating or some type of discomfort post-eating. So that's sort of the hormonal environment in week three. And then in week four, another really interesting week. So what we're really essentially doing in week three and week four is we're trying to build up the endometrium. Like the whole point of your cycle is we release this egg that's ovulation and the hope, whether or not you want to get pregnant, your biology is trying to make sure that there's a fertilized egg and then that fertilized egg has a home and that's the, that's the endometrial lining. And then we move into week four. So this is also a really interesting week because now we have this frenzied, you know, the endometrium, it's like do or die. It's like peak week, right? If you've ever competed, you know, or seen, you know, any, um, I used to compete in figure and we called this week before the competition, like peak week. So this is like do or die, right? This is where we either have a fertilized egg or we have to scrap everything and start again. And so in this week, your metabolism will also go up. And this is why we, a lot of women will notice that they are warmer this week, that they are, and this can often disrupt their sleep. It can often lead to sort of feelings of uncomfortable, maybe they're sweating, et cetera. But if we were to do, you know, a blood draw, we would see things like lowered glucose, lowered amino acids, lower free fatty acids, lower glutathione, lower vitamin D, lower zinc, lower selenium, lower, everything is lower because your body is literally like shoving it all into the endometrium to sort of make it big and thick and fluffy so that there's a home for that fertilized egg, the potential fertilized egg. So what we see this week is we have, we've Continuing from week three, we've had the sustained secretion of estrogen. 
about the middle of week four, it drops off. And the same is true for progesterone. So three or four days, let's say before you get your period, you will see that progesterone will drop off and estrogen because they've realized that there's nothing there. And so now the endometrial lining, which has been under the influence of progesterone, is now going to become, its oxygen supply, is going to, it's basically going to start to die. So it's going to become ischemic and then it's going to start to shed. And then the shedding of the endometrial lining is day one. When you see blood, let's say in your underwear or what have you, that is the endometrial lining being cleared. So that's in a nutshell, you know, as, 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 I mean, I could probably do an entire textbook on the menstrual cycle, but that's like the back of the envelope. You know, that's sort of the, the main points are in terms of what's happening from a hormonal perspective in your menstrual cycle. Thank you so, so much for that. That was so incredibly helpful. I know for me personally, I, I would always hear these words like, you know, LH and follicular and ovulation and estrogen and progesterone, but I... I never really got a sense of what was actually happening. And, and like you said before, like I just think it's really, really empowering for women to understand what's actually happening because how can you make changes if you don't know what's actually going on? I have so many questions to follow up for that. So you just talked about the levels of these different hormones during these four phases. How does that manifest in our experience of our body? So how do we feel in our bodies during each phase? Is there a change in vibe per se for the different phases or is it not quite as delineated as that? Oh, I I think there's absolutely different. We will experience under the influence of these hormones, we will experience differences in our mood, you know, our attention, our focus, whether or not we're chatty or not. So I'll kind of walk you through each week. Again, kind of back to week one where we have that, you know, the onset of our period, that bleed week, in the first you know, day or so, it's very normal for a woman to kind of feel you know, maybe a little crampy, a little lethargic. That's normal. But if you need to you know, medicate, as I was describing you know, when we were talking at the top of the hour, that's not normal. Like You should still be able to do all of your activities of daily living. In terms of like a vibe or a mood, what I've often found is the first, like this bleed week, uh, and I talk about this in the book, that this is a week for solving problems. You know, a lot of times men, when they're, you know, trying to solve problems, they'll say, okay, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to strategize. For women, I think we need to bleed on it. Like, I think we need to sit and we need to shed, you know, it, there, it's almost like it's a death, right? And in, in a way, so there's a, you know, clearing out of space so that we can let in what it is that we need. And I think, you know, I talk about this a bit more, you know, in the the emotional realm, but we are essentially cleaning out, we're cleaning out the dead, right? So we are allowing for more space in our bodies to occupy what we would like to do. So in the first week, I really like for women to journal, of course, you know, in terms of movement and nutrition, we can talk about that. But in terms of our emotional well-being and capacity, this is a really great time to go within. It's a really great time to sort of sit with your body and say, okay, what is it that I really want in this next cycle of my life? And when we move from week one into week two, so now the bleed has stopped, we are now seeing, as I mentioned before, these hormones that are all rising. We're seeing estrogen rising, testosterone rising, luteinizing hormone rising. We will also see a corresponding rise in energy. And so people will feel, women will often report feeling 
much more extroverted. They will feel much more happy. They have a lot of energy. And, you know, I think, and I've, and I've talked about this before, if you understand from the previous week, what it is that you need to bring about in your life, if you've bled on your problem and you say, okay, this is what I need to solve. This energy that you've been given in this week too is sacred energy for you to put towards that problem solving. So a lot of women will be like, Hey, it's like, it's time for a drink. It's time to go. And like, if that's what you need, like if you have thought about it, you're like, God, I have not been social. I have not been deepening my connections with my friends or my family or my boyfriend or my girlfriend or whatever, then that energy that is being gifted to you that next week, use it for that. But also, I, I, I also just want, I mean, this is, you know, my own opinion. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. But I believe that this energy is sacred and it's, it's a gift to us in order to continue to self-actualize and to continue to bring about the change and the bliss that, that you know, we are, we are searching for in this life. So that's week two. And then in week three, you know, I mentioned that estrogen dips right before ovulation, then it comes back up. This is sort of the, you know, the proverbial fall, you know, so, you know, we, whenever we think of fall, we think of cozy sweaters, we think of socks, we think of, you know, maybe pumpkin spice lattes and, you know, all of these different sort of cozy things. And this is a time of productivity. So under the, that sustained secretion of estrogen, your fo- I mean, we have estrogen receptors all over the body. But in women, of course, we have a lot of estrogen receptors in the brain. So our verbal articulation centers, our ability to, you know, put together beautiful sentences and to, to draw on our vernacular. This is a really great week for you to, you know, schedule a podcast, <laughs> uh, for you to give a presentation, for you to ask for a raise, you know, because you're just going to be so much more articulate and you're going to be able to construct sentences in a way that is just more fluid and easy than maybe other times in your cycle. So this is more of a productivity. It's like a G, you know, you know, like hashtag gets, get stuff done, right? Like GSD. So that would be like week three. And then week four, you know, I mentioned we have progesterone and estrogen sort of drop off in those days leading up to your period. And this is the time if a woman is going to experience any of that PMS, any of that premenstrual, you know, like the moodiness, the irritability, the sensitivity, the emotionality, the sleep disturbances, the GI stuff, all, you know, the tender breasts, any of that. This is a time for us to feel our feelings. This is, I often notice in myself and the women that I've worked with that it's this time where everybody annoys us, you know? So, you know, versus when we think about ovulation, like that pre-ovulatory week, we love people, we're peopling, we're, you know, extroverted. This is a time where your boss is going to annoy you. Maybe your kids are going to annoy you. Your girlfriends are going to annoy you. You can't find the right outfit. It's not washed. It's that the cleaners, like, you know, can't find the right nail polish. Like everything's wrong. But this is, this is important because this is a negativity bias. So this is, you are going to typically see things in a more negative slant this week than you might in throughout the rest of your cycle. And this is a, again, I'm bringing in my woo here. This is you, this is like an energetic portal. This is your body's way of telling you, these are the things that are not right, right now. So this, your relationship with your partner, there needs to be a conversation there. This career that you've chosen your boss is on your, maybe you need to like switch companies or switch career. Like your, the things that come up this week 
I want you to pay attention to them because so often we, we don't feel our feelings. We're not, that's not really accepted in society, right? We're called, oh, we're emotional. Oh, is it that time of month? And it's like, yes, it is that time of month. This is when my body is telling me what's wrong so that next week when I'm bleeding, I can figure out the problem, right? If you recall, we were just talking about, we bleed on it. That's how we come up with solutions. This time is going to tell us what we need to focus on. That's how I would look at some of the ebbs and flows of our mood and our vibe, as you mentioned. And I think that the more we attune to these signals, right? The more that we embrace this ever-changing hormonal milieu, this is how we become the Betty that is within all of us. It's how we learn how to appropriate. It's how we learn how to set boundaries for ourselves, how we advocate for ourselves, how we nourish ourselves with food or with rest or, you know, time with people that, you know, fills our soul up. But if we're not paying attention, we can always be on autopilot and then wonder why we're miserable, why it seems like our periods hate us, but all she's doing is like, she's trying to get your attention for you to sink, you know, I always call it below the throat, right? Like I'm super like type A personality. I love to run, you know, algorithms in my head and like being in my body can be scary. But once you, you know, sink in a little bit to see, you know, put your toes in to check the water temperatures, as they say, you know, you can, you can really, you can really extrapolate a lot of wisdom from our bodies. Our bodies are always wiser, always wiser than the linearity of our thinking. It's so empowering. Even like what you were saying with the fourth week and how we have a negativity bias. And so normally if we didn't have this knowledge of what was going on, we might experience that as being moody or, you know, being in an unpleasant state of mind, but we could reframe it. To me, it sort of sounds like when you're growing a plant and like when you're at the pruning phase and you decide, you know, what to cut off and, you know, reevaluate everything through a critical lens. So I, I love that. Some follow-up questions. Is it true? The idea that they often say that women, when they're ovulating are like super attractive to men. (laughs) Is there truth behind that? Yeah, there is some truth to that. So I mentioned before estrogen, you know, it develops our secondary sex characteristics like our, you know, breasts and hips, but it also plumps up our cheeks. It like fattens our lips. It whitens our eyes. They've actually done studies on, I think exotic dancers is the right name for them. So women who are, you know, who dance and, you know, they compared them to women who were on the birth control pill. And they noticed that women who were not on hormonal contraceptives were getting better tips. And it often coincided with that pre-ovulatory week. So one of the things I was talking about with my, with my friend and colleague, Dr. Jolene Brighton, and we were like, okay, so the birth control pill, basically it also affects your bottom line. So instead of like also affecting your hormones, it's also affecting your tips, right? Because you don't have on, you know, with hormonal contraception, you don't have that ebb and flow. So yeah, it is very true. And they've also done, like they've printed out pictures of the same woman, you know, uh, during different times of her cycle. And of course they put it in with like lots of other women and consistently men rated the women who were in that pre-ovulatory week more attractive because estrogen tends to balance, uh, it, it tends to create more symmetry in our face. It's like, you know, natural lip filler, natural cheek filler, whitens up our eyes. It just makes us look perky and awake. Hi friends. Okay. So 
I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E. 
with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. I'm glad you mentioned the birth control. A question we actually got recently from a listener, and it was something I was curious about myself, was if you're not cycling or you are on birth control and you don't have a cycle, do you still go through these hormonal changes at all or are they just gone? Yeah. I mean, when you are under the influence of the birth control pill, basically that uh, hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access is shut down. Right? So there is no communication between your brain, the pituitary gland, and your, and your gonads because you have this, you know, the progestin, as you were saying, even, even with, you know, air quotes, I'm using air quotes here, like low dose uh, birth control pill, you effectively shut off your cycle because you are tricking your body into thinking that you are pregnant. So you will not ovulate. Even, you know, when you bleed, like I know if you look at the pill, there's usually, if it's 28 days or whatever it is, there's usually like some green pills that are just like basically sugar pills. That's, that's not a period. That's just, that's just a medical bleed. So I guess to answer her question is, yeah, you don't cycle. And so you won't have access to this wisdom and, and just the general hormonal landscape, like just the changes that happen. And it's any hormonal contraception. So it could be the pill, which is oral you know, there's IUD, there's lots of different ways that there's uh, hormonal contraception. Another question I had, I was reading about how estrogen receptors are all over the body. And you were speaking just a second ago about how we have estrogen receptors like in different parts of our brain. So is that individual as far as the maybe concentration or where they are? And if so, would that explain Or would that speak to why people experience different symptoms when they have maybe excess estrogen? Like do people who have breast tenderness, is it because they have more estrogen receptors in their breasts? Oh, that's a good question. It's not necessarily about the receptors. It's about the metabolites of of estrogen metabolism. So when we are metabolizing estrogen, as we do our hormones, it has three main metabolites. So we have the first metabolite is called 2-hydroxyestrogen, which is basically we've added a, a you know an OH group to the number two position. We have 4-hydroxyestrogen, and then we have 16-alpha-hydroxyestrogen. The 2-OH is a estrogen antagonist. It cannot retain its ability to activate the estrogen receptor. 4-OH is an agonist, meaning that it does continue to activate estrogen receptors throughout our body. And particularly, it has an affinity for the breast tissue. And so we want to be very careful. And this is where I think tests like the Dutch test are very important because it can actually give you a percentage of the types of estrogen metabolites, which pathway you favor. I mean, there's a genetic component to it, but you can also see on uh, on a Dutch test you know, how much of the 2-OH versus the 4-OH versus the 16-alpha-OH you're producing. And then there can be interventions like epigenome. So for example, if you are someone who favors that 4-OH pathway, we know that it is quinone producing, DNA damaging, you will get tender breasts, which was my case. And actually, if you look at my 
if you look at my work, I genetically favor 4-OH and I produce, not surprisingly, more of the 4-OH pathway. So what those individuals need to do is to try and move the preference towards that 2-OH pathway. And you can do that by consuming foods in the brassica genus. So things like cauliflower and broccoli and Brussels sprouts and broccoli sprouts, they contain something called diindolmethane or DIM for short, and that will preferentially shift. It'll actually lower the total amount of estrogen that you have. And it also has a, these, these foods also have a, a compound in them called sulforaphanes and the sulforaphane content will actually shift your metabolism towards that 2-OH pathway. So if you are someone who tends to get this PMS, you know, the angry, the tender breast, the bloating, you know, that kind of thing, it may be that it's the way that your body is currently metabolizing the estrogen that's causing the problem. Do you have a theory for historically, because I always feel like there's a reason evolutionarily for why we have different genetic variants and genetic predispositions. What do you think would be the benefit of going down that 4-OH pathway? Oh, that's a good question. That's not something I've ever considered. I don't, I don't actually have a good answer for you. Yeah. There, I mean, I mean, there is a significant, at least with the, I can tell you with the women that I work with at least, you know, 30 to 40% of them, when we do some of this more advanced testing, we are seeing, you know, a preference for that 4-OH, this like DNA damaging. And actually I tend to see it and maybe I should look at, you know, maybe do a little bit of further workup. I tend to see it in my Mediterranean women. So I do tend to see it in my women of Italian origin, Portuguese, Spanish, you know, Greek, French, you know, we te- I tend to see it and that's not an all-inclusive list, but you know, that, that typically is what I see is it tends to be Mediterranean in origin. So I don't have a good answer for you. It's a good question. I'm always just really curious about that with everything, even like APOE4, like it's like, why, like, what was the reasoning for this variant that for whatever reason in today's society is often a problem. APOE, I think that there are some good theories around it. So APOE4, um, as you know, is one of the apolipoproteins that's involved in metabolizing fat, saturated fat in particular, and anyone that has one or more alleles. So, you know, the non, like, you know, it increases your risk of Alzheimer's. So one allele, I think increases your risk by 30%. And then two alleles, I think it's like 50 or 60% or maybe even higher than that there's this concept of antagonistic pleiotropy, meaning that APOE4 actually showed up before APOE3 in the, you know, when you sort of look at the history. And women who have the APOE4, one allele or more, there is a direct corollary with their fertility. So they are more fertile. So people who have this APOE4, one or more, are actually more fertile in their earlier years. And if you think about like 10,000 years ago, you know, 20,000 years ago, like we didn't live until we were 70, you know, we lived until we were maybe 30, like maybe until childbirth and we died in childbirth or, you know, we lived until we were 30. But there's this flip that happens now because we've extended our lifespan so much through the advent of, you know, sanitation and, you know, cleaning up our water systems and all, you know, all the things that lead to sort of like modern life that we are seeing people live a lot longer where the average lifespan now, I think is somewhere like 72 for a man. And I forget what it is for a woman, maybe 70, 
six. Don't fact check me on that. I don't, I think that, I think that number's wrong, but yeah, it's, it's, it's in the seventies, like the average, right? But now, of course, the longer that you poorly metabolize these saturated fats, now we are seeing, now that risk, of course, of the LDL being able to invade the, the lumen of the artery increases. And when it deposits its cholesterol there, then we get all that, you know, then all the problems like atherogenesis and all that stuff happens. So I think that the reasoning, at least what, I, what I've studied, is that the APOE4 gene conferred a fertility advantage to our, they were more, women and men were more fertile and then it kind of flips. It sort of becomes this thing that is not advantageous the longer that you live. I was actually reading about this week and I had read that it was actually the ancestral type that, you know, that it was like the oldest, which I did not know, but I did not know that about the fertility. That's, that is fascinating. I love that. Going back to the, the menstrual cycle and the cycles. So I have two big questions about it. One is how does it most normally manifest when things are out of balance as far as the hormones go? Is it normally high estrogen, low progesterone? Is it a multitude of combinations? When women experience, you know, exacerbated unpleasant effects with their menstrual cycle, what is, and I know you can't make a blanket statement, but what is often going on? Well, I can tell you what's most common. Most commonly, we actually see what I would call androgen dominant. So I've been talking a little bit about what it looks like to be estrogen dominant, right? With the angry breasts and the, you know, all of that. And when we are more androgen dominant, this is when we are not converting our test because testosterone is sort of the, the chain of things. You know, we have cholesterol, you know, progesterone, progesterone turns into testosterone, and then testosterone goes into estrogen. It is the conversion of testosterone to estrogen that is a problem. And for women, I was talking earlier, I mentioned it just briefly, this ectopic fat distribution, this sort of apple shape. This is when a female body is subject to more androgens, one of those being testosterone, than she should. And then she starts to develop characteristics and symptoms that, that look like a male body. So that may be that central fat deposition around the tummy. For a woman with polycystic ovary syndrome, which is the most common hormonal derangement that we see, we will start to see things like chin hair and not just like, you know, peach fuzz. I mean, like the black hair that you have to tweeze out, right? And of course, culturally, you know, if you are of Middle Eastern descent or maybe even Mediterranean descent, you're naturally predisposed to a little bit more thick hair there. So, you know, if you have a couple of chin hairs, don't, it's not PC, it might not necessarily be PCOS. Like you need to, there's a couple of diagnostic tools that you need in order to rule that in, but you'll see like more chin hair. You'll see kind of around the beard line, like around the, like around the mandible and, and the chin, there'll be more thicker hair. It can even be more hair on the chest. So like around, you know, in and around the breasts, in between the breasts, and then even more hair on the back, which is of course what we see more, more typical of, you know, a male's hair pattern. For a woman, we also might see like hair loss around the temples, right? So when we think about male pattern baldness, it's that receding hairline, usually starting at the temples. And then there's sort of like a little bit of a patch sometimes at the, at the posterior superior aspect of the skull. So you might see that in a woman as well. And this particular, this is the most common hormonal derangement that women experience. And for the most part, this can be corrected through 
the application of a ketogenic diet, which I hope we'll get a chance to talk to about today, and fasting, because PCOS at for the most part, of course, there's you know different. I'm I'm painting some general broad strokes here, but for the most part, has its roots in hyperinsulinemia, meaning that the insulin levels are chronically elevated. And that will influence how much testosterone is around. So the higher your insulin levels, the more free testosterone we have. There's a decrease in a a binding globulin called sex hormone binding globulin, which is basically just like a, like think of it as like a cab, like a, a taxi cab in New York that just like takes people and takes them to their destination. So when insulin's high, you will have higher free testosterone which is going to be able to exert more of its androgenergic, you know, effects on the cell. So that can like one one of the most beautiful things about PCOS is that it's very well, very receptive to nutritional interventions like a, you know, carbohydrate restriction and or fasting and or the addition of resistance training to help, you know, dispose of the excess glucose that's being consumed or that's stored. So that's like the most common one. The other thing that we see very commonly, and you mentioned it, is the, you know, as women kind of move into their 40s, you know, early 40s, even into late 40s, we see this declining levels of progesterone relative to estrogen in the second half of their cycle. So if you recall, we were talking about how progesterone only, like she only shows up in the, in the luteal phase, but at about age 35, we will naturally, normally, start to see a stepwise decline in progesterone. And if it happens too abruptly, too suddenly, and things that can accelerate it are things like stress, poor diet, poor sleep, uh, not enough natural sunlight, mouth breathing, you know, things like that, then we can get this differential, this difference where estrogen is running dominant relative to progesterone. And progesterone should always be the dominant hormone in the second half of the cycle. So those are very, very common which both can, you know, you can't do anything about the the progesterone lowering, that's normal, but you can bring estrogen into balance relative to, uh, I mean, save for doing bioidenticals, of course, but if you're, if you're just taking the natural first, there are things around nutrition, around exercise, around sleep, around stress management that can help bring those hormones back into balance. A resource for listeners. I interviewed Dr. Benjamin Bickman on the show and we dive deep, deep, deep into insulin. So if listeners would like to learn more about that, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Ben is great. He's like a wealth of information. Yes, he's awesome. And he's so kind. He's just like a really kind person. One of the questions that this leads really well into, you're speaking about the role of a keto diet and listeners, we're not even going to remotely touch on all of the wealth of knowledge that is in the Betty body. So just get the book now because it's all in there. You do talk in the book about how to modulate your diet and your macros according to your cycle and how to best support that. So um, like just briefly, what does that look like? Because you, you talked about the keto diet, for example. So are you prescribing keto diet all the time? When do carbs come into play? Our diet and our cycle. Love it. Yeah. So the way that I've structured the ketogenic diet is specifically for the application of women. And so often when we are talking about keto and traditionally it's really been talked about from a male perspective, right? We will see, you know, if you do blood draws and, and the, you know, even in the studies, it's like growth hormone shoots through the roof and 
fertility, you know, as measured by sperm count and spermaglutination and all you know, like the, the, the kind of the, the morphologies of the sperm, like all these things improve and sleep improves and testosterone, improves, but it's not the, the way that the traditional ketogenic diet, like actually if we, if we're like going classic, classic ketogenic diet, it's like a four to one ratio of fat to proteins and carbs. So it's like, you basically have like 80% fat, 10% protein, 10% carbohydrates. And for women, that is, I mean, you can do it. I mean, it was, it was this historically, the ketogenic diet was used prior to the advent of, of seizure medication for seizures. And they noticed that, and they couldn't explain it, but when there was carbohydrate restriction, that these patients, they were seeing a cessation in these tonic-clonic seizures. So that's sort of the history of it. But for women in, you know, 2021 and beyond who don't have, you know, seizure disorders, we want to be thinking about how we can support our hormones. And as you, you know, we've been talking about, hopefully what you know now is that our hormones are always changing. And so to think that we should be applying the same diet every single day of our cycle is wrong. It's just wrong. Like we have to, we have to modulate our food to be able to support our hormonal needs. So in the book, I talk about two main phases, which is one is a therapeutic intervention of a ketogenic diet. And then the second phase is syncing up your foods, like your macros with your cycle. So the first phase is all about metabolic flexibility. And, you know, I'm sure Ben Bickman and others have on, on your show have talked about what metabolic flexibility is, but just as a quick refresher, it's the ability for your body to easily be glycolytic or ketogenic, meaning that your body is easily using glucose, either from, you know, exogenous or endogenous, like outside or inside sources, like your diet or your body, or it can produce ketones in the absence of glucose. That's, you know, ba like basically what metabolic flexibility is. So we do a initial cycle, like a 28 day ketogenic diet that is female focused. So the macros are about 70% fat. 20 to 25% protein, and then the fill is carbohydrates. So somewhere between, you know, five to 10% carbohydrates. That's only for one cycle. You know, maybe someone like I've, I've played around with it enough now that sometimes I'll extend that. So if you are someone who has Hashimoto's thyroiditis, or you have multiple sclerosis or some type of lupus or some, Lyme, like some type of autoimmune condition, we can extend this phase. But for most women, you need one kind of month or so, like about 20, like however long your cycle is to do this like therapeutic intervention for metabolic flexibility. And then we start to move into increasing and decreasing your carbohydrates based on where you are. And this is where I think I depart for, from most people who are talking about the ketogenic diet because, and I actually see this in the communities, these keto communities where people are like deathly afraid of carbohydrates and they are not the enemy. It is, you know, when we think about the enemy, it's really the, it's the processed foods it's the carbohydrates that are like the chips, the cookies, the crackers, the Haagen Dazs, all of those things. But you know, vegetables are carbohydrates. Like you're, you know, I'm, I'm. You're never going to hear me say, you know, you can never have a berry or you can never have, you know, you know, broccoli or spinach or whatever it is. So, yeah. So I think that there's when we get into the cycling piece, we will have weeks where there's high protein, high carbohydrates, and that's to support you know, your metabolism is to support your thyroid. It's to support your neurotransmitters is to, it's to 
to support muscle protein synthesis, which is a really important construct, which is just kind of what it sounds like where you are building muscle from the protein that you're eating. And of course that your muscle mass is directly related to your bone mass. And every woman in her forties and fifties and sixties and seventies, this should be a primary, this should be a priority as like maintaining and or improving your bone density. So yeah, so we go, so we'll have weeks where it's, we bring, we pull the fat down, but we, we like double the protein. So if you go from like a 70, 20, 10, you might go to a 40% fat, 40% protein, 20% carbohydrate macro breakdown in, in week two. And I'll, I sort of go through like which weeks are for what, right? So week two, we want higher protein to coincide with the testosterone rising. And then in week three, there's, you know, we return to the ketogenic diet. There's a couple of extra steps that I add in there for the different hormonal, you know, presentation that's there. And then in week four, you know, I actually want you to increase all of your calories, right? Which is for some women is like, oh my God, what? Like what? No, like I can't, I can't, but you have to, because your, your, your metabolism is, is ample. Like it's, it's higher this week. And if you try to white knuckle your way through this week without eating more, you're probably going to, you know, crash and burn and clean out the pantry. Right. So yeah, so there's all these different ways that we can sort of change the way that we eat based on the hormonal uh, presentation of our cycle. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives, dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. I think my listeners are going to be thrilled to hear this because I definitely see a lot of conversation surrounding this, especially from women, because a lot of my listeners are in the low carb sphere, you know, whole foods, paleo, but there's, well, I definitely see a fear of carbs a lot. And I definitely see a lot of women just really confused about just what to do with the macros and this idea that you know, one is right and it's what you should be doing all the time. And so for listeners, you've got to get the book um, because all the details, it's all in there. And so many listeners will find it so helpful. Going back to that, we were talking about progesterone. 
Because you were saying how progesterone is something that's not modulated by diet. Is that correct? So estrogen can be addressed by diet, but progesterone, not so much. Yeah. I mean, you can sort of indirectly, you know, if you're having things like yams and sweet potatoes, you can, you know, maybe indirectly influence it, but there's no direct way to influence progesterone through diet in the same way that estrogen, like you can, you know, if you are having some of these foods in the brassica genus, you know, that have these dims and these sulforaphanes, you can drastically alter the way that your estrogen is handled in the body. Whereas you don't necessarily have that access with progesterone, unfortunately. Gotcha. And then also with the estrogen, there's phytoestrogens. So you could be (laughs) increasing the estrogen. How do you feel about like progesterone creams and things like that? Yeah, I'm a fan. I think, you know, I think that if you are a woman who has been, you know, getting her, you know, she's eating in accordance with her cycle, she's feeding her body and she's not, you know, having these, like I just posted something on Instagram. It's just this like, this thing that's just irking me right now is all the, you know, the women that I care for. So many of them are like, I just want to have like a 1200 calorie. They just want to have this 1200 calorie diet. And it's like, you are starving yourself. You are putting yourself three steps backwards. So yeah. So I, uh, I think that if you are someone who's eating in the way that you should, you are exercising and that exercise includes resistance training. You are practicing adequate rest and recovery, which so many women don't know how to do, and you're managing your stress, then absolutely. I'm a huge fan of progesterone cream. I haven't yet started using it, but when the time is right, and I want to try and prolong it as much as I can, but when I can't avoid it anymore, I will be using progesterone cream. I feel like progesterone cream, at least in the more holistically minded health sphere often is the thing that a lot of practitioners recommend. So I'm always really curious people's thoughts on that. So again, for listeners, for more on the cycles and the diet and everything, get the book. But one topic I do want to talk to you about before we're out of time is sex, (laughs) because you have a lot of amazing information on that in the book, in particular, the the benefits of sex and the benefits of orgasm. You have your seven-day orgasm challenge, which which I decided to do and changed it into a everyday orgasm challenge. A forever? Yes. It's like, it's going to be forever now. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the, the benefits of sex, particularly orgasm for women. Absolutely. And this is, again... One of the things I don't think is discussed enough in the healthcare sphere, when we think about, for women in particular, when we think about the balancing effects, just even if we just want to forget that it feels amazing, right? But if we, if we want to just think about the balancing effects that it has on our brain, it reduces our anxiety. It, you know, brings balance to, you know, for if you are someone who experiences a lot of PMS, having regular orgasms actually increases your pain tolerance. So some of that prostaglandin activity and the contractions that you may experience or that discomfort that you may experience can be really attenuated and mitigated by regular orgasms. And of course it has effects on the brain, effects on mood. It's like, you know, nature's ambient, right? It like helps us all get a better, more restful sleep. So I think that orgasms are really, really important. And again, kind of coming back to like societal views on a woman who enjoys sex. I think that there's been, you know, you're either, you know, frigid, right. And you don't like it and you're, you know, cold or whatever, or if you enjoy it too much, there's like, uh, you know, there's so many names that I won't even 
go into about a woman who enjoys herself. So my advice there is screw that and kind of get after it. So when we think about orgasms in general, I talk about this in the book, there's like different phases in terms of how we climax. And one of the things that I think is really important, so there's four different phases. One is called excitement. Second phase is called plateau. The third phase is the orgasm, which is, you know, the peak and then the resolution that happens afterwards. But one of the phases there that I want to highlight is called the plateau. And this is, you know, when this is kind of the distinguishing factor, I was, I was talking in the book, like to vibrate or not to vibrate, like, do we use toys or do, are we manu- are we going to manually stimulate ourselves? And in this phase, there is increased activity in the pleasure centers in the brain, like the uh, amygdala, hippocampus, which is like learning and memory as well. Anxiety centers, as I mentioned, in the brain will shut down and we're able to experience more dopamine and adrenaline. And this is, this is the phase in this whole climax series where we can experience that increase in pain and stress tolerance. And then of course the muscle tension from that, from the excitement phase is now being transformed into like contractions and muscle spasms. And you may even find that you may find that your hands might be contracting a little bit, your feet might be curling, you know, that kind of thing. And it's really important as women that we get to know ourselves manually. Like you can for sure use toys. Like I'm not saying not to use toys. You can use as many toys and as, in as many ways as you want, but also make sure that you're incorporating manual stimulation, whether it's yourself or it's your partner, because this is going to help you bathe in that plateau phase, that plateau phase, which is right before you orgasm a little bit longer so that you can get some of all of these brain benefits, this, you know, all of this hormonal regulation benefits as well. So big fan of orgasms, big fan of sex (laughs) in general. Um, I think that we all should be having it, but if it's not, and if you're not with someone, uh, you don't have a partner, that doesn't mean that you can't be benefiting from orgasms. You can, you know, have toys, you can get some, you know, organic coconut oil and, you know, go at it. So sometimes I read a book, there's like a very, very practical takeaway that I implement in my life that I just like will probably keep for the rest of my life. And this was one of them, Um, (laughs) especially with your, like I said, you have the seven day orgasm challenge and you actually recommend that listeners take a picture of their face before and after. Did you do that? Did you take a picture before and after of your face? I didn't, but I've been looking at my face. (laughs) For for the difference. Actually, you know, that's not true. I've been taking pictures of my face every day. So not for this, but I could compare. I'd be really interested to see what you observe because a lot of women will say that their eyes look brighter, that they're, you know, we were talking about those effects of estrogen before, how it sort of plumps up the cheeks, plumps up the lips, you know, rosy cheeks. Like a lot of people will see decreased inflammation. So, you know, if you have like under, like a lot of women will, especially if we, we're, if we have like insulin resistance, we'll have like dark circles under the eyes that usually is improved as well. There's like, you know, just generally the inflammation, the puffiness in the face is down. And then our lips look fuller. Our cheeks look fuller. Our eyes are a bit whiter. Like the whites of our eyes are a little bit brighter as well. That is so incredible. No, I just love it so much. And quick clarifying question. So the plateau that you were talking about, so that's the period leading up to the orgasm. Yeah. So there's like excitement is like when you just kind of start, right? So it's where your heart rate, maybe your blood pressure starts climbing. For some women, they might notice 
like reddening of their skin, like maybe if they're light skinned, especially like chest and neck area. And then after you're sort of like kind of into it, that plateau is that time before the climax. So, you know, the longer that you stay there, and of course there's like tantric philosophies that you should sort of bring yourself up to or like right before orgasm and then come back down and right up and then right. So, you know, you have these long, I think there's been, was it Sting? I forget who it was talking about how they've had these like sex sessions that were two hours, three hours, four hours in length. So the longer that you can kind of be in that plateau, and of course you don't have to, you know, some, some people might call that torture, but you know, the longer that you can be in that plateau phase, the better that you are going to have some of these brain and body benefits. Okay. I'm so glad you said that because I I have some more questions about that. Not to get super granular because you were talking about using the vibrator or not using the vibrator. So what if you're using the vibrator, but you're extending the plateau? Like is the problem shortening the length of the plateau or is the problem like the vibrator? The problem is the shortening of the plateau. So if you are very disciplined... You can use your toys uh, as well. But I still think that there's, you know, the vibrator is still mechanical, right? So some people sort of feel like they've just been buzzed afterwards, right? So there's also, you know, learning different types, like different strokes, different pressures, different, you know, patterns, I think is also really important for when we're when we're thinking about manual stimulation. But the main issue that I take with only climaxing from you know, a toy is that we tend to skip like that, that plateau phase is really rushed. It's like, it can be, you can have, you know, your session, but you go from sort of excitement really quickly through plateau right to orgasm. So if you, like I said, if you're very disciplined, I am not. So, you know, I, I cannot. So I typically will have like, a, you know, there's a combination of both for sure. Just to clarify again, the health benefits from this are just really intense hormonal changes happening in that brief amount of time that you're engaging in that activity or what is actually happening to your hormones beyond that? Well, I think, you know, if you only have one orgasm and never do it again, it's just, it's very similar to like going in the gym and lifting weights once and it never, you know, and never doing it again. Like you'll have that transient change, but if you don't build upon it, it's like, it's like any health habit, right? Like I would never say, Hey, I had one salad you know, now, now I can have burgers for the rest of my life because I was healthy that one time. Like it's, it's something that builds on, builds on itself. So I think that when we are consistently engaging and the science suggests, you know, for, to have these profound effects on your hormones and your brain and your, and your body and to have the oxytocin and the melatonin, all the things that happen is around twice a week. I actually think that they've looked at couples and happiness in the marriage. And I think it was a minimum of once a week, but ideally it was like two or more times a week that they were engaging in some type of like, you know, whether it's oral sex or penetrative sex or whatever with each other. So if you're, if you are orgasming once or twice a week, I think that directionally you are going to help with some of these hormonal balancing effects that we've been discussing. Are there health benefits if you have sex, but don't orgasm? I think so. I mean, I think that you have, when you are having you know, sex with someone, hopefully this is a person that's very important to you. And I think that we are at our most vulnerable, right? As women, there's like, someone is entering your body, right? So there's trust and bonding that happens. And we are never as, you know, as vulnerable as we are when we are engaging in, you know, if we're talking about penetrative sex, I think that like someone's body part is coming into your body. Like it's, it is, you know, 
not an, inv- it's not an invasion, but it, it, in, in a way it is. So you really have to trust and surrender and open up to this person. So I think that there's a lot of benefits around oxytocin. And now oxytocin, we typically think about oxytocin rushing in after an orgasm. But of course, if you, if you don't orgasm, but you share this experience with this person, you are going to feel more bonded to them. So I think that, you know, I, I think that while orgasming should be a goal, whether you are with someone or without, I think that there can also be a really beautiful exchange of energy with somebody and there's, there's not necessarily an orgasm there. Well, again, there's so many other things that we could touch on, but maybe something to end on for women who feel like they are just a slave to their hormones. I know my sister, for example, has PMDD and for her, I know she really feels like it just rules her life in a way. Like she has what she calls, she has a name for it. Like she has her, her period of time where her symptoms are really, really bad and she has a name for it. And it's basically like just, she just has to like, you know, get through that time. And then she has like her golden week when she feels good. So for women who maybe that extreme, maybe not, but women who feel like they are just slaves to their hormones, can anybody make change? And again, I refer listeners to your book, but like, where is the first place to start? Is it diet? Is it stress? Is it everything? Just what is your your message to women who feel like they are struggling on the hormone bus? What I would offer is that your body is magical and your body wants to be healthy. And so these symptoms are not working against you. They're working for you. What your body's trying to do is show you where some of the misalignment is in whether it's your physiology or your life or some kind of combination of the two. I think that everybody can improve. I've seen massive improvements from women with Hashimoto's going in remission to endometriosis, adenomyosis. Like I've seen all sorts of things. And I think that when we combine, and it's not all of, and the other thing I want to say is like, you don't have to do all of it at once tomorrow, right? It's not like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to do keto tomorrow. No. So we want to just very slowly and gently layer on some of these behaviors and I talk about, you know, how to do it in the Betty body. There's, you know, the last chapter is like kind of your roadmap. So I've given you all of this information, which can kind of feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. And it's like, okay, what do I do with all of this now? So there's like a, a template for you to go through the book, choose what it is that you are going to work on, and then work on that for a period of time that is beyond your comfort zone. Because <laughs> a lot of times we're like, oh, I'm just going to work on this for a week and it'll be done and I can move on to the next thing. And it's like, well, when we're thinking about metabolism, body composition, weight loss, these things take time and your body, I want you to talk to your body as if she was your best friend. Or if you are, you know, a, a woman who maybe is carrying trauma from her past, if you were speaking to your, you know, little girl inside you, right? How would you how would you handle her? Would you yell and scream at her or would you say, "Okay, like we got this. We're going to do this one step at a time." Like you would never scream at a newborn baby for not walking, right? Like you expect that with time, you know, with practice, with trials and errors, that that newborn baby is eventually going to figure out how to lift its head. And then maybe after that, after tummy time, it's going to figure out how to get on all fours and then it's going to crawl and then it's going to pull itself up to sitting and then it's pulling itself up to standing and then it's walking, right? But you don't go from newborn baby to walking, and to have, we often have these unrealistic expectations of ourselves. So I would say, choose a timeline that you're not comfortable with, which is usually like 
six months, 12 months, 18 months, and then master, you know, one aspect of the book. And then as you have mastered that, you can start layering in new behaviors because it didn't like, you didn't wake up like this last week. Like this is probably something that has been developing slowly with time. And the reverse is also true. You're probably going to maybe not have the exact same amount of time that it took you to get here, but you are going to have to give your body a chance to catch up to what your mind wants. So all that to say is that your body is beautiful. It is magical. It's, and it can, and it wants to be healthy. You just have to put the right input in to get the output that you want and be gentle and patient with yourself. So the book details all the things that you need. So you can find, you know, the Betty body, you know, and any online, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the places have the book. And you can also, if you, if you want to, you know, pop over to my podcast, you can kind of see what we're talking about there. It's a lot of the similar subjects that we talk about in the Betty body. And yeah, th- that would be my starting place. It would be pick up the book, read through it and just sit with yourself and figure out, you know, what is the first thing that I need? Cause for you, Mel, it might be nutrition. And for me, it might be exercise. And for one of your listeners, it might be like getting her morning routine, you know, on track. And for someone else, it might be getting her sleep routine on track. So there's a lot of like, there's a lot of different pathways. They all lead, all roads lead to Rome, but there's just a lot of different ways that you can get there. And yeah, for listeners, Dr. Stephanie just touched on two other things that we didn't even touch on that are massively explored in the book. And that's the morning routine, the role of sleep. There's so much, so much information in there. So definitely do not hesitate to get it. Also, you have a nutrition and fitness guide that you can get at bettybodybook.com. So the last question I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is, which is also something that you talk about in the book. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh my goodness. Right now in this moment? Sure. Yeah. Now, forever, whatever you like. I think I'm really grateful that I listened to my body's whispers. So I don't know if you've ever attempted to write a book. It is a labor of love. It is like birthing a child. In many cases, it's painful and there's lots of stalls and you don't know if the baby's head is ever going to crown. And I, I really felt in the process of writing the book, I really had to not only become Betty, like to become the person that I was talking about, but to really have an opportunity to understand the science in a way that, you know, I might've not made the time for in my clinical life. So I'm very grateful that I followed my intuition, that I, you know, my women in my practice were like, this needs to be a book. Like you need to, you need to document this. You need to share this with people. And I was like, you don't, that's not right. You know, like people don't want to hear about this. And I'm really grateful that I listened to myself to follow through on that. And that's, you know, the story, you know, that's why the Betty body is here in, in a way, because I listened to that little whisper that was telling me that I should help more women on a bigger scale. Well, I love that so much. And I as well, I am so grateful for all of your work. I know my listeners are as well. It's just really, really incredible. Just echoing everything I said in the beginning. And now listeners understand a little bit more why you're just really doing a service to women, the knowledge that you're providing, it's empowering. And then on top of that, you provide very real, practical, implementable lifestyle solutions. So I cannot thank you enough. This has been so amazing. Thank you so much for your time. And hopefully we can talk more in the future. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. For more information, 
you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.